Hey people, welcome to Accidental Gods, to the podcast where we believe that another world is still possible and that together we can make it happen. I'm Manda Scott, your host at this place on the web where art meets activism, politics meets philosophy, and science meets spirituality, all in the service of conscious evolution and increasingly in the service of finding a way through to a future that we would be proud to leave to the generations that come after us. My guest this week is an astonishing young man who is at the forefront of finding that flourishing future. Saurav Roy trained as an economist at Schumacher College in the years after I left and when I was still teaching on the faculty. His research dissertation there focused on demonstrating what a global south-centred Green New Deal could look like, using case studies of concrete policy and movement frameworks committed to anti-imperialism, agroecology, SDR expansion, which we will talk about in the podcast, technology transfer and climate debt reparation. Since then, Saraf has joined Carbon Tracker Initiative, which is a London-based not-for-profit think tank which researches the impact of climate change on financial markets in the belief that the critical levers of power rest with the financial institutions and that if we can change those, then we can change the trajectory of the whole of our global governance system. And before that, because he has a track record in founding startups at a young age and executing entrepreneurial roles in global non-profits, Saurav was selected as one of the youngest global shapers in Bangalore in 2017 by the World Economic Forum. He really is one of the rising stars at the forefront of ecological regenerative economics. So people of the podcast, please do welcome Saurav Roy. So Saurav Roy, welcome to the Accidental Gods podcast. Where are you and how are you this morning? Uh, thank you so much, Manda, for inviting me. Uh, it's so lovely to see you after a, a long time um, from Schumacher. Um, I am right now sitting in London, um, in Greenwich, and and looking at the sun and, and 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 enjoying my first summer here in this country. Fantastic! Because after Schumacher, you joined Carbon Tracker. Is that what it's called, Carbon Tracker Initiative? That's correct. That's called it's called Carbon Tracker Initiative. So tell us a little bit about that and what attracted you to it when quite clearly with your CV you could have gone to do an awful lot of things. Yeah, it's a, it's a very good question, Manda. Um, after Schumacher and studying economics, um, regenerative economics, ecological economics, I was really drawn into um, areas where we could contribute and, and, and fixing this climate crisis. And, and one of the areas um, I was looking at was finance, the supply side. How does uh, the money system work that is fueling this carbon emissions? And and carbon tracker is obviously that popped up. And and what drawn me drawn me into this organization was its founder Mark Campanale. I've been listening and hearing him uh, even before uh, Schumacher. Um, and his synthesis, um, he he essentially is someone who studied agricultural economics and has spent a few years working in that area before moving into what they call the city side, working in the city and and working in in, in that area. He wanted to see how can he change the financial institution that can um, respond to this crisis. 
I, I guess what I've understood from him working with him, he has a very strong belief um, that one of the critical levers of change uh, where power resides um, is finance. And if we can change the way finance works, it is a critical way of changing power. And that's where his fundamental beliefs are. And and that led to um, uh, this creation of um, Carbon Tracker that basically popularized two critical terms, uh, which is called Carbon Bubble and Stranded Assets, um, which is essentially looking at how, uh, how risky it is to invest in fossil fuel, not from a moral standpoint, just from the aspect of financial standpoint. And it is using their language um, and using the leverage called risk right. to, to make these institutions change. Okay, so we're looking from the perspective of financial people who speak an entirely different language and have a very different mindset. Most of them are not concerned about the climate and ecological emergency at all, as far as I can tell. And so what, if I've understood what his plan was, was to make it clear to them that investing in fossil fuels was just not financially sensible in the long term. Absolutely, absolutely. And and a big chunk of these um, embedded emissions in the stock market, uh, the, one of the f- uh, reports that uh, that made Carbon Tracker become Carbon Tracker was Unburnable Carbon Report that published in 2012, which essentially looked at um, um, that how much embedded carbon emission exists in all these um, uh, stock markets. And he, he did the math for it. Wow. And if you burn all these reserves um, of um, these companies, where would it fit with the carbon budgets? That was the number was given during uh, 2000, 2012, that where does these two numbers lie? If the carbon budget is this, and if the embedded emissions in the stock market is this, there needs to be a correlation. And if what we have embedded already in the stock market is way more than the carbon budget, then there is a risk of stranded assets, meaning that you have all these assets which are being financed, but it cannot be burned because uh, the science disagrees that you, you can't burn them all. But that assumes that the people in the stock market care about the science. And we know that the, I think the sustainability head of uh, one of the big banks recently said, you know, it doesn't matter if Miami is five meters underwater because it'll only affect the GDP by 0.2%, so we should carry on burning carbon anyway, which is clearly functionally insane. But if they don't believe that the carbon needs not to be emitted, then they're not going to take on board an argument that says these are stranded assets. So has it, has it worked? Did more people take it on board than would seem likely? Um, has it worked? It's, it's a good question, right? And and it definitely has penetrated, the the concept has penetrated within um, the, the, the people, the financial institutions. Stranded assets is, is a term that is used a lot, okay. carbon bubble. So it has uh, penetrated the imagination of this institution, Mark Carney using um, the reports. So it, it has captured the imagination of these people. But has it really changed uh, financing of the fossil fuel? We recently re- released a report. I would uh, really um, encourage if, if you speak to Mark, and I think he could expand on some of these concepts. He's, he's more of an expert um, in, in this. But to, just to share a bit of few examples, the recent report that we did um, in 2022, uh, we released last month, which is a 10-year update on the first report that came out, the unburnable carbon. Okay. And what we found that there are 40% more fossil fuel finance 
that was 10 years before oh dear so in the last 10 years we have financed 40% more so what does this mean in terms of maths so uh, 10 years ago there was 2800 gigaton of co2 emissions embedded in these stockpiles 2800 and what was our carbon budget 886 oh my goodness so that's an order of magnitude difference yeah and that was 10 years ago right today it has increased 40% which means there are 3700 gigaton co2 embedded emissions and what is our carbon budget today it's 360 so <laughs> there is 10 times more in the reserves yeah. than what we can safely burn to limit 1.5 right so so there is definitely the math doesn't work one of the yeah. r- reports i guess clear um, uh, uh, i guess recommendation was 90% of these is unburnable <laughs> because to limit to maintain the carbon budget you, you cannot burn them all um, to remain in that budget so to ask has this worked it captured it has kind of penetrated but has it really led to action i don't know because if we did, if if this work didn't happen maybe it would have 80% more on right so so we can, so so that's okay. that, that that's has been the yes um, and and just to kind of maybe expand on this one last thing which is the carbon bubble right when we think of this 3700 it's a huge bubble and if you think of the th- 3360 which is the carbon budget it's a small bubble the extra bubble which we can't burn is essentially the bubble that we are talking about which is a financial risk right. and if if that need to be ri- written off it means 100 trillion dollars is just gone so there there is a risk of of, of what we call that and that's that's essentially the concept of carbon bubble wow 100 trillion dollars gone yeah <laughs> wow so because i became quite a functional sense of an economist my answer to that is okay just write it off it's money it, we make it up it's an idea why don't we just have a different idea but people who work in finance get terribly upset when i say that um because for them it's not an idea it's a concrete reality so within carbon tracker and and i completely get that you're fairly new here and and probably betting in and still finding your feet but is there an idea of how to rescue that 100 trillion so that it doesn't crash the world's economy mm. there is ways i guess um to go about it um is is working with these financial institutions regulators and policy makers to talk about transition is how can we take this money out and not finance more new oil rigs it needs to stop now there need there is no justification of finding new oil reserves because if already the 90% what is there is unburnable why are we looking for more yeah. it, it's pointless right so there is the fight to stop finding new ways to drill right so that's one the second way is i guess working with these financial institution to i guess write down some of these assets uh what you call um fixed assets which are essentially these rigs and and, and areas where these oil are being pumped right. and when there are these called flows which are pipelines so essentially kind of writing it down to to um slowly move the money from these areas to more renewable sectors 
would be one way of doing it there is another lever which i feel um, is not much talked about which i guess my colleagues at carbon track are doing really well is called around decommissioning there is a huge cost in decommissioning some of these um, uh, areas of 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 extraction and if we can make these companies to to pay up for these decommission costs some of their business model will fail to exist and once their business models kind of collapses people will automatically move towards renewable so there is this detailing of of of, of working with regulators policy maker and financial institution which i think mark could explain a bit more okay yes definitely because i'm looking at what's happening for instance biden at the time of recording last week he just announced more oil exploration um as far as i can tell the uk is busy financing more oil exploration and you're right it's it it doesn't work on any level but they don't seem to get that and i'm interested in how we make them so let's yeah i would definitely like to talk to mark let's park that for a moment but let's just do a little bit more of what you're doing within carbon tracker your research what what is your area and where is it going and how would you like it to pan out yeah i work as an associate and my um, areas are two folds work areas number one is a lot of my work is very horizontal in terms of uh, since our focus is oil gas coal and climate risk disclosure and uh, also decommissioning my work is essentially work with senior leadership and management to figure out ways of how are we measuring some of our research okay. so once we kind of commission some of our research how do we make sure that some of the research we are doing how are we measuring uh, the impact of the intended impact the metrics of how let's say we are doing a report on coal or or oil how are we making sure that okay just putting out report is not enough because it's not an academic institution right um it, it's also like moving one step forward and then and trying to convince and change mindsets so how do we measure some of these areas okay. so that's one area of my work is figuring out impact metrics and frameworks of of figuring out if the research what we are doing is it actually changing anything so that's one right brilliant and the second one is around fundraising it's it's institutional of how we make sure there is enough uh, in grants and and funds to c- continue carry out this in-depth analysis which is um, very neutral and able to- who might offer fundraising because i'm guessing it's not right-wing political parties so the right-wing think tanks all seem to be funded very heavily by the fossil fuel industry okay. you don't have a kind of anti-fossil fuel industry who is likely to be funding it it's it's essentially philanthropic and i'll give you some numbers which will kind of uh, surprise you out of all the philanthropic funding that has grown globally around 750 billion in 2020 wow only 2% goes to climate what <laughs> and that is a mad number in it <laughs> where does um, the rest go so the big are we talking dollars or well, this is dollars i'm guessing everything is always in dollars 750 billion dollars of which 2% goes to climate so that's i mean crisis this is mitigation and adaptation together wow <laughs> and that's crazy so big chunk goes to health of course so um, then education and climate gets less funding than arts and culture <laughs> i can send you the um, mckinsey report and the climate works right. report and it's a mad number <laughs> is this because they just don't get that the extinction means no more arts and culture or or is it yeah. that yeah you know, this somehow it's okay to fund arts and culture and within the i'm guessing super rich people talk to other super rich people and they want to be doing stuff that seem to be cool yeah wow 
i don't know i think it's it's, it's maybe uh, something to do with 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 the way these philanthropic institutions are kind of started off but i think things are changing things are uh, after ipcc 1.5 degrees cops 26 25 this sector is growing very exponentially okay, right so um but not at a pace where um, it is needed right okay so you're busy chasing the 2% along with everybody else who's busy chasing the 2% yes absolutely so essentially fully philanthropic funded and we rely on grants which is um a different funders european american um and and it's very um i guess um uh, research focused uh, work yeah <laughs> i guess every conversation on conversation starts with a bit of gloom and doom and and it does right <laughs> but there needs to be like pockets of hope and i thought to kind of give out some sort of pockets of hope within this numbers that i just shared around carbon bubble right yep. because it is a very heavy subject to kind of talk about um and and there is no escape around it but there is a bit of optimism um around the growth in these renewable sector but in terms of optimism what what we should be looking at the patterns the world is heading and and one of the ways is today 2 terawatt hours 2 terawatt hours of electricity is generated through wind and solar that is global generation right this is growing 20% per year wow which means in 20 years this growth will take over the fossil fuel generation so 40% of the world's electricity can come through wind and solar if the rate with which this renewable sector is growing right so in 20 years we will see the fossil fuel company the graph if you look at these graphs the graphs is usually big chunk fossil fuel and small chunk renewables yeah. and this graph will suddenly start to invert. becoming the other way right. and 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 that's the pattern which we are going so there is hope in 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 terms of the way we are progressing the question is always how quick <laughs> yes so as an adjunct question to that is 20 years fast enough but i guess is it exponential growth because 20% per year yeah static yeah is one thing but if it's 20% per year and there's a kind of incremental increase in that then then i would think 10 years you begin to hit singularity probably yeah and and the answer your question is 20 years quick enough i like looking at the science don't think it's quick enough <laughs> we have 10 years but that's the best we could do let's get that done and 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 see where we can yeah <laughs> yeah absolutely it's it's better than nothing at all and that graph i would think would make an impact with the money men in a way that 1.5 degrees probably won't yeah so that has to be a good thing yay okay bright spark that's that's <laughs> that's cheered me up so you wrote your dissertation at schumacher on the green new deal and essentially the problems with it and how it could be improved. Yeah. So let's move over to that. Not necessarily I think Biden is about to implement the green new deal, <laughs> but let's imagine a world where Sarah Roy gets to tell the people in power good ideas, give them good ideas. What good ideas would you give them if we were going to actually really throw ourselves at a global solution for the climate and ecological crisis? Yeah. Thank you for asking that question, Vanda. Um and this is something that I've been thinking about during during my dissertation um yeah where there was a lot of proposals being put out to kind of decarbonize um and 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 make the uh, the the, uh, the economy recover. This was during pandemic, so there was a lot of economic recovery conversation happening. Um and I picked up the most important I guess progressive 
bill or legislation I could find, which was Green New Deal. Um, the, the inception is around 2007-8 when Anne Pettifer kind of uh, sat together with her friends in Baker Street in London and and then thought to kind of uh, draft something new that is not going that's going to decarbonize and put um, economy at the heart, which is workers, new jobs, employment, all that conversation, right? Ten years, nothing happened. I think after 1.5 degrees, when it came out, um, the IPCC report, things starts to pop up again, and and Ocasio got this kind of popularized it, right? I started reading this legislation, and I I couldn't wonder, and I couldn't stop wonder <laughs> that it sounds really amazing uh, to read all these stuff, but coming from India, and I'm living, born, and brought up there. It sounded like that everything will be changed, but nothing will be different right. from where I was sitting. Right. <laughs> right. Um, so, and I could I could see I'm like a big fan of uh, Ocasio Cortez, a big fan, supporter of Bernie, right? But <laughs> it still didn't kind of saw that what was happening um, to global South countries in all these amazing proposal even though u.s still hasn't accepted some of these stuff right it's only accepted in in european union which is called the european green deal right so i can understand how tough it is to go through some of these areas to kind of pass legislations um so to kind of have that conundrum question everything will be changed but nothing will be different was a part of my argument um and how do we change that yes so i kind of started dissecting uh, all the different proposals of Green New Deal. There are like six or seven now. There is like the Ocasio-Cortez, there's European, there's Bernie Sanders, UK Labour Party, South Korean, Australian Greens, different versions, right? And it is good to have different countries will have different ways of tackling this. There are some things that were never addressed from um, uh, from from South perspective, which is becoming a bit more, more uh, nuanced. So first one is... Um, uh, there is a strong inclination of of using just transition from a very nation state border perspective. When they talk about just transition, they can only talk about what's happening in their country, right? When Bernie talks about just transition, it's happening to the workers in US. Same in Europe. There is a huge inclination towards carbon sequestration, CCS, offsetting technologies, which I found it very eco-modern, and I don't think that's the way to progress. Um, to kind of that's not my personal inclination to kind of go. So that's second. The third one was, it was a race to become green giant. It was this <sighs> European nations or American that who could be the next green uh, Masiha who can take us through this crisis. I'll, I'll, I wrote something down from the European Union website. It says, climate change and environmental degradation are an existential threat to Europe and to the world. To overcome these challenges, Europe needs a new growth strategy that transforms the union into a modern, resource-efficient, and competitive economy. Um, right? So, um, I guess you, if, if you work in these places and institutions, you have to speak similar neoliberal languages. But it was, at the height, there was a conundrum there. That on this one hand, there was this green growth or like this growing this economy into crazy level. And then there was this question in my head. Where is this all stuff going to come from? <laughs> right. Um, and, 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 and there was no conversation about supply chain justice, <laughs> okay. which was part of my dissertation thesis, that how can we make sure that there is this expansion, which is predicted. Uh, and this is very new stuff, by the way, Manda. This is more and more literature is coming out. That the World Bank released report in February 2022 that there's going to be a 500% increase of mining 
to meet the global demands 500% of mining of what of rare earths or yeah rare earth minerals cobalt nickel uh, my country india exports aluminium arundhati rao writes a lot about aluminium by the way um copper um and and all of that so all this stuff needs to come from somewhere and i like if you study world system theory and global economics you know all this stuff is going to come from south <laughs> a big chunk of it um, yeah so so my question was why doesn't gnd addresses this supply chain justice so that was one critical if you tell me what needs to be included in these european deals um or green a green new deal is the hard focus of how can we make sure the supply chain is at the heart of this strategy so that's one the second one which kind of addresses in green new deal in the european context or bernie sanders way but doesn't really in the american way which is the loss and damage um, problem where you can call it reparation uh, which is a more environmental uh, respecting the environmental movement during the 70s it was all about reparation and climate debt you can use that language but essentially it doesn't addresses the loss and damage issue um i was looking at the numbers of the loss and damage issue and it was coming something around we india or like global south countries will spend around 1. something around a trillion um dollars or by 2050 on loss and damage right and that's a huge number and the only way i guess i don't know how will we finance some of these flash floods and stuff yeah. so so to address these reparation and loss and damage there there isn't a mechanism to transfer some of these uh, wealth um so so these are the two aspect uh, one is around loss and damage was was a big focus second was supply chain justice was a big focus because there is going to be increased mining and the third one is something i don't know this came out of my dreaming <laughs> which was you know in loss and damage i've met i've worked in bangladesh and in in climate prone areas um and and some of the things i saw the people what the things they have lost yeah, it cannot be paid by a check mm. no matter how much it is important to transfer the wealth or help these communities to kind of thrive and for that <laughs> these are areas of prayers these are areas of childhood where they grew up that cannot be uh, fixed with money for yeah. that you need what i called carbon truth and reconciliation commission which is a place of archiving stories for climate induced pain and violence um and i thought it could yes. be this is something has been made during i think i learned from uh, the apartheid movement in south africa and and the, and the nazis um uh, the post nazi kind of uh, uh, healing process in in germany that there needs to be an archival of story that what climate induced pain feels and looks like mm-hmm. and that stays with us and there is no archival process right now <laughs> of, wow. of of sharing that so i think there was that which 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 i kind of wanted to stress upon that there needs to be some sort of a way for these communities to come together and heal and share what salination of their water has done to their communities and what agriculture loss really means because it's the some some of the stories are with me but if there were, i'm sure there are countless that could be uh, compiled yeah has anybody picked up on that within carbon tracker or within any of the philanthropic mm. i don't know whatever they're called entities that you connect with because that feels so big and so true when you say it it's obvious and as have you managed have you got any traction on that everyone likes the idea of reconciliation truth and reconciliation jonathan liked it you know jonathan from shumaker <laughs> i do jonathan dawson yes 
and and i wish i think you you would be seeing some of that in 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 arts and museum and i and i and i'm trying to work on some of these exhibitions bringing out these stories of what sea level rise doesn't mean anything but unless it changes mm. the way you do farming and then how it changes your wedding um, in 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 parts of bangladesh so these very human stories when it comes out it bridges a gap between north and south uh, not only this even north and south and south india bangladesh there's a lot of tension happening around climate how can we bridge some of these gaps and these stories really right. help these right uh, these are intricate stories yeah. um so that's one i and i think i'm trying to kind of find ways to kind of uh, use my networks and and trying to get these stories out um and and it's something i would do for without even money to kind of constantly archival process the second one i think in terms of supply chain it is something that that i'm getting more and more into and it's something i've been trying to think um a lot about trying to kind of address this from a nation india perspective south asian perspective and it's uh, and i have some ideas which i have been throwing around with uh, some of my um, friends i know and then we are trying to build some projects around it but it's not at a stage where i could share more about it yet but it's in the making <laughs> but this is all predicated on a growth economy on on which is functionally insane and is this because Anne Pettifor, who's an amazing economist, and and I have huge respect for her, but she's a very old style economist in many ways. Was she just locked into a growth paradigm, or did she feel that she needed to have a growth narrative because otherwise, basically, nobody is going to listen? Yeah, I think the latter. Right. Uh, I've met Anne Pettifor recently in 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 one of the conferences, and I asked her similar questions around uh, growth and well um and. and i think this you know when when people enter into the stage of parliament and government they automatically have to put up a skin to kind of talk and and in a way that you could be listened to right so i think they quickly put up this um, ways if you ask someone individually are you do you think economies needs to grow as much as they can it's like a pointless question right can you have more mangoes than a, in a tree than the tree can produce nobody will say yes right it's 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 right. um but it's i don't know somehow these culture uh, within the the air within these institution are in a way that you are not allowed to use these words right um so maybe it's to kind of convince and get the word across you need to have compromises and any social entrepreneur would agree that to win uh, a war you need to kind of some wins few bad tells um, and then move on uh, and then move to the okay. next stage so i think that's that's where in terms of i think and petrol kind of move that there needs to be a growth but i can she is very critical on the growth strategy as well yeah okay because the whole supply chain this idea that it's going to be 500% increase in mining is insane <laughs> just devastating yeah and and insane and it seems to me i don't understand how anyone can equate that with even attempting to keep the idea of 1.5 alive and and that's a whole argument in itself there's a lot of people who say it's already gone um and it depends when you started measuring but let's let go of the numbers for a minute and just assume that we're trying to create a flourishing planet where we exist in some kind of balance with a world that is still alive mm. you can't do that with a 500% increase in mining the amount it in the same way that you can't do it by burning all of the stranded assets of the yeah. of the carbon and i was very struck by the numbers of a trillion uh, yeah, round numbers being spent by the global south to try and mitigate climate damage while the people in the fossil fuel companies are presumably weeping buckets at the idea they're going to lose 100 trillion 
in stranded assets. And that somehow, is anybody at a global economic level looking at the ways we can shift the whole balance of how money is shared? Because even that number, it's 1% being spent on trying to heal people's lives, while the fossil fuel companies are, are weeping over the fact that they're losing you know, 100 trillion of money that didn't exist in the first place as a concept. And that means, therefore, I don't know, they can't buy another super yacht. And the the inequity of that just seems to me to be fundamental to the question of how do we rebalance the world economy? And and I realise this is, this is an extraordinarily big question, but have you given time to thinking about the ways we could do that? I have one idea. I've shared this. Yay, go for it. Um, it is something I thought to kind of expand on. Um, how do we change the world balance? I don't know. It's a huge question. People, the big thinkers, economists have been thinking about it, right? In terms of how do we address this um, quick uh, f- um, issue of, of rebalancing some of these loss and damage issues, there is this idea of STR. I don't know if you have heard. It's called special drawing rights. Um, it has been used four times since the uh, IMF. IMF, it's, a, it's, it's, it's not a currency, but it's kind of like you can f- think of it as a token that IMF gives to the, um, uh, 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 to the member states. Um, and the last time it was used was uh, for the pandemic recovery, which is uh, around $650 billion. The way SDRs are distributed are very... Of uh, uh, north-south or colonial way, which is the bigger the chunk of the economy, the bigger SDR tokens will you get, kind of, right? So America gets a big chunk right. because it's a bigger economy, Europe, but they don't need that much because uh, in COVID, COVID was really badly hit in uh, global South countries, so they didn't need a bigger chunk. So there's a bit of that, but people are working really hard to change some of these sharing process. But essentially, you can use these SDR mechanisms, which is special drawing right mechanism, to fuel some of the climate action work. This was first proposed by this amazing lady, the Prime Minister of Barbados. Um, she's this fierce, powerful lady <laughs> that that you don't want to fight with. <laughs> uh, and huh. uh, and um, she put out that because you know some of these action, some of these funding, sometimes uh, southern countries, let's say Tunisia or in India, they take loans and these are sovereign debts and they become super indebted for that. The beauty of SDR is nobody gets to be in the debt because sometimes let's say you are one country, you get some SDR, you can liquidate that SDR into some sort of a currency that you can use it to fuel some sort of an action. The definition of getting the SDR is that there is a global need for long-term crisis. That's the kind of predicament of, of the inception of SDR. And if there is that definition, then <laughs> I can't see anything more important than this to fund loss and damage without taking loans, to fund climate action, which is, I guess, renewables, energy, all of that, right? And you can do that. Um, and, and and there are economists working. So SDR could be a way forward in at least next 10 years. Let's experiment in next 10 years. How can we use that currency or or, or, or that uh, and then move quickly make some changes happen yeah that's really exciting and I cannot think why I haven't come across this before so let me just step myself through this and make sure I've understood under normal circumstances the dollar is the current global currency and 
the IMF and the like would offer loans which were created because they would have a debit and a credit side on a balance sheet. And we've made a billion dollars and we've given it to you, but basically that's that's a debt. And we're charging interest. So we've made money out of nothing. We're selling it to you at a profit and you're going to be forever a debt slave to us because we've given it. But these SDRs are, we've made money out of nothing and we're just going to give it to you. And are they giving it in dollars or are we creating a whole new currency here that is not linked to the US dollar? Because that sounds actually quite revolutionary. Yeah, uh, I don't know exactly the whole mechanism. I've been trying to get my heads around how does the whole transaction works. But essentially, these IMF gives out these SDR uh, in, in, uh, you can call it as like, let's say tokens. And one of these countries who gets it can exchange it with a different country, let's say US or Japan. Uh, right, and, right. So it's yeah, a new And when they give out their tokens, they get something in return, which is the currency that we talk. So SDR in itself is not a currency, but you can exchange it in form of currency, which is amazing, right? Yeah. And, and this was used during COVID recovery and 650 billion, which is the largest it got uh, given. Before that, it was, of course, you can guess, was during the financial crisis. And, and that was again. So right. it's, it's during this crisis that is being used. And I think my dissertation kind of urged that, guys, let's just do it now. You know, it's just... Yes. Yes. I, I'm... I'm my, my All my fuses are blown because this is essentially... First of all, we're moving the global hegemony of finance away from the states. Someone in the IMF has gone, we don't want the dollar to be our primary communication of value. Yeah. Transactions anymore. And we're not going to create a negative balance. Balance, exactly. When we, that, that is potentially... It's possible. It's if somebody could now run with this, is it could change the entire global financial structure. Because yeah. you could wipe out, you could give India tokens to the value of the trillion. Yeah. And and you're right. I mean, I absolutely hear that there is no number of tokens that you can give someone whose land has been salinated and they can never live in it again. Yeah, yeah. There is nothing, no number of tokens that will recreate the oceans if we completely kill all life in the oceans, which seems to be quite likely within the next decade. Yeah. But if we could create tokens such that it a dead whale is no longer worth more than a live whale. <laughs> and... And dead land that is now no longer able to have anything done with it, we accept that it's gone, but we can then somehow find more land for you. And you, yes, you, you know, your entire culture was based on, on this land, but everybody around the world is going to have to change their culture in some way, I think, as a result of this. Yeah. So we're going to collect the stories of the pain, but then build new stories of rebuilding mm -hmm. and of what rebuilding looks like and what can we save and what do we want to save? Because I'm guessing that everywhere around the world there's bits of culture that we're all quite happy to let go of. Yeah. And there's bits that we really want to protect. sustain. Yeah. yeah. Let's let's protect educating our girls and get rid of the bit that says, you know, they're not allowed to go to school, for instance. Yeah. And see what we could build. It feels really exciting. I'm Incredibly impressed. So the next question is, who is picking this up and running with it? Because there must be somebody. Yeah, they're, they're very leading economists. Um, um, some of the uh, economists I, I, I do like to follow, Jayati Ghosh, she has been talking about this 
um uh, she's this uh, again indian fierce lady another indian lady <laughs> you know on a fight with uh, one of my favorite economists um she's been talking about she uh, she's been talking about this during you know the vaccine problem where the northern mm. countries had more access southern countries she's been using some of these very interesting models to kind of find ways give solutions of how this can be done better so she's been leading that work um um uh, the the people at the cop i think it has kind of slowly getting captured in the imagination that it's been used for covid how can we use it for climate action and we'll see that in cop 27 because in cop 27 one of the ways um one of the central issue is going to be how do we create a mechanism for these loss and damage reparations uh, it is not any more about does south Uh, deserves the 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 money it's been quite the science is it's, quite how can we do it rather than should we do it yeah its question is mechanism um, but in cop 26 somehow the united states and other european nations found a way to accept that it was their historical embedding but they create a language in a way that it does not mean it would be legally compensated because as soon as you have that in wording it means all these countries will apply so they somehow figured out a way to not get into this legal battle but somehow they have accepted it so now it's more about the mechanisms and and 27 is going to be uh, at the heart okay. of this mechanism and that's this autumn in egypt in sure egypt that's correct yeah so i'm beginning to understand why the imf has possibly done this because perhaps i'm being wicked to the imf but if we can create tokens out of nothing that are not dollars and give them to you in reparation then it's not coming off the balance sheet no. of our own economy which we would have great difficulty selling to anybody to to the right of Jeremy Corbyn basically absolutely, absolutely. i said it it's a win-win strategy and i still don't understand why people are not doing it <laughs> well no except so this is very interesting because my economist brain is going okay inflation yeah and and i have a theory of inflation that it has nothing to do with creating money and everything to do with scarcity of yeah. stuff but if we're looking at reparations the stuff that is scarce is land to live on that mm. we're going to let you because we otherwise we might be mining on it with our 500% increase in mining and we don't want to give it to you because hey there might be minerals under there so land is a finite resource. Mm. If we create an infinite number of tokens, then the cost of land becomes infinite. Mm. So we have to find a way for that not to happen, don't we? We have to somehow create ceilings, internationally agreed ceilings for cost of things in numbers of tokens. And then we're heading at international financial governance, which is first necessary probably but also quite scary because it depends who's running it. and i don't want the heads of enron or shell or any of the other you know, huge huge mega companies that are currently running the world's finances to be running this yes. Yes. so sarah how are we going to create the revolution <laughs> that takes over the creation of these tokens and makes sure that it's actually equitable if you again if you were advising and they were listening to you Mm. How do we dish them out in a way that doesn't mean they're just accumulating with the people who already have a lot of dollars? Mm. Does that question make sense? Yeah, yeah. Let's, yeah, let's make this a central uh, topic within COP27. How do we get the mechanism right because that's a place where a lot of these financial institutions representatives are there. 
when we have them catch them at where they are in the gathering and how do we get the agenda forward okay this is a mechanism that can yes. be used since all of you guys are happen to be in this room how do we find a way to do do this you have kind of nailed the question accidentally there is that it's likely all to be men and they're likely to be 90% white and their their concept of getting the mechanism right so i may be projecting my concept of the kinds of financial people who are controlling the world's finances yeah but Uh, but i watched what happened after cop 26 and at cop 26 there were a lot of people gathered but the sum total of people from the fossil fuel companies was greater than everybody else put together and within 3 months a petro state has launched a war that allows them to hike the price of fossil fuels exponentially mm. and i watched the financial papers and there was a great deal of Oh, you guys had all divested from fossil fuels. How sad. Don't you think you'd better reinvest now because the prices mm-hmm. are going up and that's the only way to get your money back. And I don't think that was an accident. Mm-hmm. There's all those fossil fuel men get together and within 3 months their industry is looking very bright from a financial point of view. It's looking catastrophic from a global point of view, but they don't care. Mm-hmm. So, we're going to get a similar I would suspect bunch of people together at COP27. Yeah. We can ask them how do we get the mechanism right and their version of right is going to be we stay in power. And actually, I think that needs not to happen. So, have you got an could we you and I create a mechanism that would balance the power? Yeah, could we get the mechanism right? It, it's so top down man the these institutions, right? To move these yeah, institutions yeah. um uh, that um the kind of level of determination and 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 movement that is needed to kind of move this institution has to be uh from the top right unless there are ideas to mm. do things at at a state at a local state level i do believe unless we can create a global revolution basically yeah exactly like <laughs> I, yeah like i do like to think these very top down big ideas right but when it comes to work i do work in local economies local right that's where the kind of um spots of regeneration and an abundance kind you can create but always kind of the north star is there they they have to move as well right mm, and, yeah. and yeah Uh, sorry, I don't have a very good answer of doing. Uh, okay, doing. but maybe just asking the question. Yeah, you know, I, I firmly believe that asking a question is a political act, and maybe just asking that question and holding it open and seeing what the accumulation of answers are. If you were to ask a Bangladeshi farmer, it, you would get a different answer from yeah. if you asked um, Ben van Barden, who's the head of Shell. That yeah, he just would. And so, and presumably, if we asked these amazing, powerful women. Yeah. the the prime minister of barbados we'd get a different answer again so i wonder is there a way to yeah. collect those answers ahead of cop mm and take them as as a this is a selection of possible options that might be different to the options that you the guys at cop are going to think of that's a very good that's a very good inquiry and that we should write something about this i think you've given me an idea to do something yes Yeah, cuz I look at Carbon Tracker and you have a lot of contacts amongst the people at the top of the hierarchical pyramid and both of us I imagine want there not to be a pyramid but I don't think we're going to dismantle it in 10 years. And and we need the answers in 10 years. Yeah. And so if we can persuade them that there are good answers. Mm. Because I I think these guys depend on profit and their minds work in a particular way but they're also human they have kids and grandkids yeah and and i don't believe they wish to see 98% of the human race rendered extinct within yeah. their lifetime yeah yeah if we can offer them options that that 
could be seen to work, yeah. then they might run with them. So, right, okay, we have we have a plan, you and I. Let's get going on this and and use. You know, you can get Carbon Tracker to somehow support this as a as an inquiry. Oh. Then then there is reach, isn't there, to how we could get going because. Yeah, SDR tokens, non-debt related yeah. finance has to be the way forward. And supply chain justice, mining. The mining. And supply chain justice, yes, of course. But supply chain justice has to arise out of a financial system that doesn't assume that mining this bit of land is the only way to make a profit out mm -hmm. of it. Yeah. How do you arrange supply chain justice? What What are the foundations of your supply chain justice yeah there's one is land use policy at the heart of it is how do we make sure that where are we doing these sites right now a lot of data and and information about these sites even in countries like india it, it's very scattered we don't know where the, the mining companies it will like we know but it's not very compiled and, and put together the another thing i observed within india is the mining and the climate change work is not seen together the mining is geological survey of India and climate change is very different, right? So somehow this is needs to come kind of together because it was built during the World War II era and it was very different. And now it's coming together, right? So we need to join these things together. And we need to join them globally. Globally, exactly. Like mining is essentially a part of these um, data models of, of renewable. A lot of these renewable models built by economists doesn't take into raw extraction process into their modeling, which is which is a huge carbon emission process. Of course it is. Yeah. So we, we need to bring those some of these aspects together. Information of these land is very, very complicated to get in the, especially India, to kind of figure out these, um, uh, where are these operation sites, who are these mining companies, who are, what's their profit margins, what are the working conditions, because there's going to be, as you say, 500% increase in mining. We, we think about biodiversity, but we also have to think about labor exploitation, because 80% of the mining people in India are not protected, as much protected on the worker rights. So it expansion of these people, what, what you can call new slavery, right? Um, that's what I call everything will be different, but nothing will be changed. Yes. Which means that you are in increasing their dollar income, but their dignity and also it's just, it's just. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yes. Supply chain justice is, is, is at the heart of it as well. Yeah. Right. So human dignity, ecosystem integrity. Yeah. And, and it seems to me that the key to that is, is bringing these things together, but also moving away from just tracking carbon. Yeah. yeah. Because it cannot be the case that some, an intelligent, let's assume, economist gets together a system and doesn't notice mm. that in order to produce whatever amazing, I don't know, regenerative power they are wanting to create, there are a thousand more great big holes in the ground that are completely destroying ecosystems yeah. and enslaving yeah. millions more people into lives, very short, very brutal, very deeply unpleasant lives with no dignity. That shouldn't be allowed to happen, frankly. Absolutely. So we need to make a new economic system that says you don't get to produce an economic paper unless you've actually tracked it all the way back to the beginning. I can't believe that that happens. I, no, let take that back. I can believe it happens. I would just prefer to believe that it didn't. If we're going to move beyond carbon as our only index, because that does seem to me a problem of COP, a problem of a lot of the net zero ideas is we're only looking at carbon. This is how the UK government can turn out agroecological ideas where it's actually more carbon effective to have industrial chicken 
Mm. million chickens in a place, which then completely destroys the entire river system and the oceans. But somehow they've managed to balance the carbon slightly better. Yeah. How can we find an index that people will pay attention to yeah. that takes into account the bigger picture? Yeah. The, you know, what drawn me to, to Green New Deal was during Roosevelt's um, work, on on passing the green uh, the new deal which was about not only figuring out rapid industrialization unemployment there was a dust bowl happening in uh, parts of uh, us which was about environmental stuff and he said and this is overlooked during when we talk about green new deal new deal is that he changed the financial system he took back the gold reserves right if you remember uh, yes. and he said and and he said the economy needs to reflect the american people's condition something along these lines and if emissions and carbon emission and and capturing that does not fixes um, the the condition of the planet then it is not right accounting and there is good frameworks the planetary accounting uh, the planetary framework the uh, the planetary boundaries framework is a very good framework to kind of look at how well we are doing. It should be a very good report card of, of how well we are doing. Um, right. And I think I'll, I'll lean towards that framework is is how good our water, air, and, and, and all of that. So I think leaning towards that would be, yeah. Okay. And that's out of Stockholm and they have the measurement systems in place and we can trust them on that. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think Stockholm, they, they do a very good job in tracking some of these. I think it, if it can be kind of moved into very nation ways or like uh, geo, geolo- like areas where South Asia can have one and all of that, because uh, the, the, the northern countries have a very interesting way of outsourcing some of these and calling we are offsetting or like we, we don't have carbon polluting. It's classic, right? Yeah, it's classic. <laughs> yes. And, and I have to say, they don't just do it. To offsetting to the global south. They offset it out of London. I live in Shropshire and they're buying up perfectly good farmland in the north of Shropshire, ploughing it and planting you know, roses, citrus, spruce. And, and they produce more carbon in the ploughing to plant the trees than those trees will ever sequester. And they're taking land out of farm use. And then they go, oh, look, we're, yeah, we're offsetting. It's all cool. So we're heading towards the end of the time. It seems to me there's quite a big question. And I I'm just throwing this out because it feels like there's quite a generative set of questions that we're evolving. Around the nature of nation states, Mm. they're a relatively new concept in human evolution. And it has struck me increasingly recently that the political need to retain the functional boundaries of our nation states and for political entities to only consider the best options of those nation states is part of what's causing the crisis. Have you explored or are there people exploring the ways that we could dissolve the nation state boundaries? Or do you think with your experience of being in India, Bangladesh, all of the quite rigid, you know, India and Pakistan, that boundary is a relatively new boundary, but it's now a very rigid boundary. Mm -hmm. Do we have any hope within a time frame that matters to start dissolving boundaries? Um, it's a very good question, Manda, and, and I wish I, I uh, the answer wasn't gloomy. <laughs> uh, if the answer was more global cooperation, if the answer was more uh, looking beyond of our passports <laughs> and then and, and going beyond that. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is not. Um, and it's something I would invite you to uh, interview, I guess, get him on the podcast, Jake. He's been trying to study uh, climate migration 
and 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 how it is changing geopolitics right um and there is a huge industry rising in in um, more and more money is being put to create stronger border uh, recruit more people in border security forces so so the patterns of of industry is against the ideals of what we just spoke about right if we are to follow the patterns of this industry then no matter how much amazing tweets we put out or 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 global cooperation conversation happens when it comes to really people coming into your nation and 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 asking to open the gates our very paleolithic brain comes out for some reason and 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 that is not human nature hmm. um that is not um intrinsic uh, to our condition there is a very interesting concept called gandhian neuron a gandhi neuron uh, it is actually a term <laughs> it's actually wow. an academic term uh, which wow. gandhi yeah i did not know about this i found out during my research that he rejected he and he has a friend called kumarappa who was an economist um and he had this concept that humans are not rational uh, self what do you you know all those words self rational self as rational self interest yes self interested group because he kind of said that we have this intrinsic value of of sharing and going so we have this neuron condition which the neuro the neuroscientists gave the term called gandhi, gandhi neuron right. um, and right. and so it is not intrinsic but um, if we can have more cooperation especially if south asia had i i am very closely i am very political person and if if india had more cooperation with nepal bangladesh pakistan sri lanka and kind of come together be like guys the drought's going to hit all of us you know mm-hmm. and if if it raises more than 2 degrees all of us are going to suffer right and so um, the the problem is not just north south the problem is just not religion i guess right now it's an immediate for us to kind of come together and make sure we have i wish there was more and more um uh, cooperation in that just like european union we don't have a strong union like that in, in south asia and i wish i wish uh, we could have that more um and that would really make things way much easier because these droughts and these natural disasters uh, cuts bro- boundaries more than anything and and we need more cooperation okay so what springs up for me in that is suppose the sdr tokens could be used in a way that would promote the together the gandhi neurons and less of yeah. the paleolithic brain and that yeah. because it is in the end down to people wanting to hoard resource because they feel resource is scarce at the yeah. point when people feel there is abundance then we become much more pro social and i yeah. wonder if we can create that sense of abundance with the tokens that should be part of our inquiry So we are heading for the end but I think you had something that you wanted to say in closing did you Yeah and you asked this interesting questions uh, at the end of every podcast I listened to a couple of yours where you say if there is a teenager or young person or someone who you would like to kind of share a few things that they can do right now yes. to help um and then and I and I pondered over that question because I get asked this a lot um and I think I wanted to kind of maybe share one thing and especially if you're young well, I'm very young I'm only 26 but um uh, uh, but if you're 16 15 the, the first part is I think it really helped me as well uh, while while I was going through uh, teenage and trying to decide what I want to do with my life is when you are interested or or there are things that catches your attention 
and it draws you there is a pull you have to get closer and proximate to it um and and look at the people who are essentially affected by it so when i came to this country i wanted to understand i guess uh, transi- just transition and the lives of the workers in the oil industry and i met david from aberdeen and he told me about his life in working in these oil rigs and in ship wow. and and it really helps you understand at the heart of the problem because when you meet someone this is just one person um something changes in your heart so get proximate and it has happened all through when i was in dhaka i met fishermen's um and i know their names their daughters names and and, and it changes you so 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 get proximate be it um mental health be it uh, women's right lgbt whatever it doesn't matter get proximate be it music if you want certain music get proximate right <laughs> the second one is is quite a funny one it's it's be young <laughs> don't let any crisis take away your childhood um uh, be it a genocide be it political oppression be it climate crisis no crisis is more important than your childhood so so live that and you don't want to be a 30 year old thinking i left my childhood behind so uh, go do the fun bits um, and I, and i learned this when i was in dhaka and I, there was a genocide happening in myanmar when people were being afflicted the rohingyas were coming to bangladesh and i was happened to be in that site and what caught my attention was the people the rohingyas the refugees every evening they would play Uh, a sport together and they would just laugh and 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 cheer and even as they've seen some of the most horrifying things they never let the sports go they would play a kind of like a volleyball they would play with their legs and and that was just something so fun to kind of watch so be young be foolish and 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 and, and do all the funny things um, that every young person does don't 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 be adults <laughs> because that's not inspiring be young is very inspiring so so your existence in itself is inspiring um so that's the second one and and the third one <laughs> yeah this is a challenge for for anyone who's listening create regenerative spots or places if you think you belong to a neighborhood create something that you think is an aspect of 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 regenerative future um you don't get inspired by listening to someone you get inspired by witnessing or experiencing and and when you create these places spots of of what it looks like be it a co-op of a farm or be it a like a exhibition of art exhibition or be it a um documentary screening that you did or be it something which you felt was important for you and you wanted to share with your community create that and you will see how it changes people and when it when people move you your work is done and when the heart moves your work is done and you can move on to the next so create these regenerative spots i don't know how will you do it that's a challenge so you look up the definition of what regenerative spots means and how will you create that through your uh, god given skill that you have beat art music talking uh, farming anything dance but create those spots and i can tell you it will give you so much meaning and happiness uh, than than anything can give so yeah be young be proximate and create regenerative spots <laughs> that's amazing so many good ideas thank you so much and i sincerely hope you get to cop 27 and are able to ask the questions that need to be asked thank you thank you thank you banda this is such a lovely conversation and i hope to see you again very soon <laughs> and that's it for another week Enormous thanks to Sorav for all of the inspiring work and the depth of the thinking that goes behind it. The idea of these SDRs 
as global tokens, not debt-related, feels to me genuinely radical and genuinely evolutionary, renaissance-creating, whatever it is that we're going to call this movement that we want to create, that is not a revolution because we don't want to keep going around in the same spot, but that moves us all through to perhaps a more Gandhian perspective on the world where we can all flourish. That genuinely was a truly inspiring conversation. And I hope you found it so too. And particularly Sorrow's three ideas at the end of stay young, play, get proximate to the people that you want to understand and then create something regenerative in your own community. Really glorious, fantastic ideas to carry forward. So that's your job for this week, people. Go forth and be regenerative. As ever, we'll be back next week with another conversation. And in the meantime, thanks to Kara C for the sound production and for the music at the head and foot, to Faith Tillery for the website and the conversations that keep us moving forward, to Anne Thomas for the transcripts, and as ever, to you for listening. And if you know of anybody else who would be inspired by Soros' ideas of how we can move, towards a much more equitable world, then please do send them this link. And that's it for now. See you next week. Thank you and goodbye.